This is They Create Worlds, episode 143, The Prophet of the Avatar. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Avatar, arise from your slumber. A historian has invaded Britannia, and Lord British has selected you for a learning adventure. To learn something, simply sit back and relax, as Alex's sultry tones will lull you into a false sense of stupor, and may defeat you merely with facts. This sounds like the worst Ultima game ever. Oh, that couldn't be the intro to one of the Ultimas. (laughs) so yes we are back on the ultimate train which is a trilogy of trilogies hope somebody got a nice payout on that it is going to be a three-parter i thought we could talk about ultima 4 in the first episode and then move from there but of course we couldn't but this is more fitting thematically don't you think ultima is often called by richard garrett himself a trilogy of trilogies so now we have a trilogy on trilogies related to the ultima series Which certainly makes sense. However, there's something I think everyone would be amiss about that you skipped in the previous episode. What's that? I noticed that in Ultima 3 Exodus, there was music that was created and in the Apple II version. We never talked about that. I mean, there's always music. Ken Arnold wrote most of it in the early days. Some pieces, most notably the fan-favorite piece of Stones, was actually written by the real Eolo, the bard, one David Watson, who was a compatriot of Richard's at the Society for Creative Anachronism, and his profession was making old-timey medieval reenacty type of things, particularly crossbows, crossbows that actually worked. He also played the lute. He composed Stones as kind of a homage to Stonehenge, and then it seemed very fitting for the Moon Gates, which were very Stonehenge-like. Is that enough music for you? Are we good now? Yes, we have succeeded. Now that we can thoroughly lay Ultima 3 Exodus to rest, we had to say something about that music. (laughs) Let's look forward to a game that has no villain, one that is just self enlightenment and enrichment lays the groundwork for the horror that is to come. That's right. So we've touched upon this a little bit in our last episode, and I'm sure we did in our origin episode as well. Richard Garriott himself always likes to kind of divide 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5, 6 thus. Ultima 1, 2, 3 is when he learned how to program. He started out in basic, he moved to machine language, and then got more complex with his machine language. Ultima 4, 5, and 6 is where he feels he learned how to tell a story. That certainly starts with Ultima 4. We, of course, talked about this last time, but there are wild inconsistencies in the first three games. They really are not trying to be a coherent world. There are shared elements that cross over, The first and third games both take place in Sasaria. The second one takes place on Earth, and we just kind of are told to forget about that and never mention it again. 
there's the linkage between the villains that are supposed to be husband, wife, son, even though son is also a computer. Don't worry about it. You've got Lord British. You have Shamino. You have Iolo. You have some of these characters that come back. He wasn't really thinking in terms of creating a world, creating a story, creating a reason for being. Ultima sold well, so there was an Ultima 2. Ultima 2 sold well, so there was an Ultima 3. Ultima 3 sold really well. The first one to crack 100,000 units, which back in that day you were over the moon when you cracked 100,000 units. Naturally, there would be an Ultima 4, but there was little thought put into it. There was really very little thought put into the game systems as well, I think it's fair to say. Richard was a decent enough programmer by this point, and he did a very good job, as we talked about last time, of enticing people to more. Maybe the game design wasn't great, but you always felt that there was something else amazing waiting around the next corner. And while nine times out of ten that was not actually true, that one time out of ten sustained you through the whole game in a time before readily available walkthroughs and the internet and Let's Play videos when you just felt like you were dropped into this expansive world and you just got to explore, discover, and conquer. There are lots of strange inconsistencies that we talked about. Thievery was a way of life in the early Ultima games because the way it distributed resources like gold, you did not have enough money to keep yourself in food, which was a requirement to not instantly die if you ran out of it. Stealing was something you could do in the game to get stuff. You had to do it. It wasn't like an optional minigame. It's not like an Elder Scrolls game where it's like, well, I can play a thief if I want to and try to take all the spoons off of this guy's table. It's not that kind of thievery. It was required if you were going to beat the game. Then you had some of the other inconsistencies like in Ultima 1 where princesses are being held prisoner even by the heroic Lord British. You have to go murder a jester who is not given any kind of character background that would imply that he's a bad person. I mean, there's nothing to imply he's a good person either. There's this guy that's a jester, and you just have to murder him in cold blood to get a key to rescue a princess that's being locked away for no discernible reasons. There were a lot of these inconsistent elements. Some of these inconsistent elements were rather stark, sociopathic, psychopathic. And I'm not saying Richard was a psychopath, because he wasn't. I'm just saying the things your character had to do to make it through these games were often quite dark. I think Richard himself would say that he wasn't really thinking that through at the time. He wasn't making a statement with any of that. It's just that's not what he was focusing on. The first three games are really emblematic of a larger theme of this is what can be accomplished at the bedroom coder level. Right, right. So with the next set of three games, this is really what can be accomplished when we have some actual money behind us and can actually develop a game with a business acumen behind it. Yes, at least some business acumen, which we'll discuss. After Ultima 3 was released, by the time Ultima 3 was released, there had been some pretty profound changes in Richard's life. For one thing, he was at his own company now, as you alluded to, Origin Systems, which he founded with his brother so that he would have a place to always publish his games after he had such bad luck with his previous two publishers and getting all of the money he was owed out of them. But not only did he have his company now, but then the company, after Ultima 3, was moved to 
New Hampshire. We, of course, talked about this in our origin episode, but there was a complicated situation with the brothers. Richard was down in Texas, where the family was from, where his parents were, etc., where his life was. He was trying to do the company down there. His brother was up in New England, and that's because his brother's wife, Marcy, was also an engineer and was also a very successful person, and she had a job with Texas Instruments. That job was located in New England. Robert Garriott was actually commuting back and forth constantly between New Hampshire and Texas, trying to balance his work life with his home life with his wife, and it was not working, as you can imagine. From what little we can tell, from what little's been said, my understanding is that the marriage was starting to come into serious jeopardy because of all of this travel and all of this apartness and all of this distraction that was going on. And so Robert basically laid down the law and said, this has got to stop. My life is in New England. My life needs to continue. If we are going to continue this company together, this company has to be in New England. It cannot be in Texas. But here's the thing. Marcy's climbing the ladder. Within three years, she should get promoted to a high enough level in the company that she will have a lot more flexibility on where she does her job. He wasn't asking Richard to come to New England forever. He was asking him to come for about three years, and then we can go where you want to go. Even though Richard wasn't happy with the idea of New England, this did seem reasonable to him. There was an end date on it. I'm sure he sympathized with the fact that this was really hard on his brother, because it was. I mean, this wasn't just being, you know, a complainer. I mean, this was serious. They moved to New Hampshire. We talked about this in our origin episode, of course. It's important also for setting the stage for Ultima Four, which is why we really need to delve into it again. New England just did not work for Richard at all. Oftentimes, people don't like where they live, and they get on with it. But, I mean, Richard really, really didn't like it. It's a completely different culture in New England from in Texas. First, of course, is the weather. I mean, that's not cultural, though it does shape the culture. They get just a wee bit more snow in New Hampshire than they do in Texas. Metric ton of snow. As someone whose family is from New England, I can attest to this. Yep. We're not making any comments on who has a better culture or who lives a better way or anything like that, but there are some broad things that you can say that hold up pretty true. Texas tends to be a place where people are more outgoing and are more get out in the community and jaw with everybody and have big parties and whatever, barbecues, what have you. New England tends to be a less boisterous place, a little more insular. Not that the people aren't friendly, but it's a part of the country that has been settled for a very long time. It's a part of the country where the people that have lived there tend to have lived there forever and ever, and so it's kind of more cliquish. You're warm with the people you know, but outsiders are rare enough, not in a big city, but in the type of New England area that origin was. You know, when someone new comes in, they're a little less warm towards them, a little more suspicious toward them. He felt kind of isolated. The accents are very different. The people are very different. The weather is very different. I don't think anyone was going out of their way to make Richard Garriott feel unwelcome in New England, but he did feel like an outsider. 
They also had some problems early on. They had a couple of break-ins of the house he was sharing with two other employees early on. A lot of equipment was stolen. That's the kind of thing that can happen anywhere, but it happened there, and it further colored a situation that was already kind of sad for Richard. His mood kind of changed to reflect that. He wrecked his car early on in bad weather. Speaking of stereotypes, you know, watch a Texan try to drive in snow. Oh, boy. (laughs) So he wrecked his car very early. He bought a new black Mitsubishi. He started dressing all in black. This is when his famous braid that he still has today first appears. He goes through his black phase because he's just kind of upset and I think a little bit moody and is not happy with where things are. I'm armchair psychologizing here a little bit, but I think this environment and this unhappiness caused him to some degree to become a little more introspective and to really, not necessarily for the first time, but one of the first times, really think about who he was as a person and what kind of image did he want to project to the world. You may get something like Ultima 4 even without all of this, but I don't think that it's an accident that the Ultima series took this sudden shift at this exact moment when he's experiencing New Hampshire, because you could say it in the glib way that he says it, which is, first I learned to program, then I learned how to tell a story. But Ultima 4, is, as you know, Jeffrey, because I know this is one that's near and dear to your heart, it's really not so much about a story. It's really about becoming, right? Becoming a hero. You're sort of thrown in there and you're going, hey, we got these concepts of truth, love, and courage. I want you to explore and purify these and find all these shrines and talk to people who embody this and learn some mantras and meditate on it. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things like that. It's really a different take, especially at the time of... Let's have a morality system that is devoid of religious dogma. Right. We have to remember, Richard Garriott was one of these teenage bedroom coders. By 1983, he has four major games under his belt, if you count a Calabath, one of which, the last one, Ultima 3, has become an especially big hit. That makes it feel like he's a seasoned veteran, that he's been around. But he started all this as a teenager. In 1983, Richard Garriott is 22 years old. I think that's something that a lot of people don't really appreciate at the time. It's just how young he is. Exactly. I mean, even today, you look at him, he looks a little bit old. He's got gray hair, almost looks like a little bit of an old hippie. <laughs> Not to degrade the guy. Mm-hmm. He is actually quite young, comparatively speaking. Absolutely. And still has a bit of that. I mean, I've met him twice. Jeffrey has actually met him once as well, because at Dragon Con, he was presenting at Dragon Con, but we also ran into him and Star Long on the street <laughs> on the way to the hotel. We was given the presentation. He'll go to cons dressed as Lord British. Then I also met him in conjunction with the Video Game Pioneers Archive with the Smithsonian. He's in his 60s now, but he still looks pretty young, all things considered. I mean, you can tell he's not 20, but he doesn't necessarily look 60 either. He was a young guy when he did these first games. He is only, at this point, just starting to figure out who he is. I don't want to get too much into the psychologizing, but I think the fact that he is really just becoming a man, 
just beginning to really figure out who he is as a person. At the exact same time that he is thrust into this new living situation that is very different from his old living situation and very different from his old lifestyle, I think that all had him in an introspective mood and in a mood to discover more about himself, discover more about the human condition, figure out where Richard Garriott and Ultima fit into the fabric of the universe, not to not to get too uh, grandly metaphysically new age hippie about it. This is something that plays in whenever he's in a new situation. You said before that he went to college when he was younger. Right. And he had a lot of trouble integrating in until he found a society for creative anachronism. Absolutely. And that helped draw him out as a person. Absolutely. I think that when he went to New England, he doesn't have that social support structure there. He doesn't have any friends and family outside of his brother in the area. Yeah, and a couple of employees. But yeah, very few, very few. He feels isolated. He feels locked in. There's nothing to really draw him out. If he has nothing from the outside in order to enrich his soul, for lack of a better term, you have to look within yourself. There's probably something to that. I absolutely agree. The exact order of things that specifically influenced the way Ultima Four took shape is not necessarily entirely clear. Richard Garriott has talked about himself a lot. He's written an autobiography. There was another book called Dungeons and Dreamers that even though it wasn't technically about Richard Garriott, was half written as a biography of Richard Garriott with his input. Richard has talked a lot. He still talks a lot. I was finding a whole bunch of interviews and stuff where he would talk with other people about the Ultima series, where he's gone from, where he's going, what he's working on now. He has a lifelong passion for this. Absolutely. He's talked about the creation of Ultima 4 and written about the creation of Ultima 4 obviously many times. It does feel like it's one of these things that the more often he revisits it, he gets into a narrative. And this isn't about being deceitful. This isn't about grandstanding or hucksterism. It's just that whenever a person is asked to recount a story over and over, they start to ingrain a narrative and they start to connect the pieces in a way that tells the story that they want to tell, not in the sense of lying, but just in the sense of emphasizing certain things to conform to a narrative you want to convey. I think there's been some of that in Richard in his discussion of Ultima 4. Not to mention the fact that whenever you remember something, you're not remembering the core event. You're remembering remembering the event. That just sort of creates mental drift. Exactly. It's not exactly clear when each of these influences came together, but we can at least examine these different influences and see how they converge to create a situation here. One event that Richard always likes to talk about is that one thing that was different about being at Origin, having his own company, was that he actually got feedback. He got fan letters. To hear Richard tell, and who knows, he says that when he was at California Pacific or Sierra, when they were publishing his games, Ultima 1 and Ultima 2, that they never provided him with any of that kind of feedback, which may be true. Presumably, there were people writing those companies to say how much they liked the games, but nobody passed that along to him. 
now that he's at his own company and the fan mail's coming directly to his place of work, he starts seeing the letters. And I say fan mail, but some of it was fan mail and some of it wasn't. One event that he really hones in on is getting a letter from a parent that was just really, really upset about some of the stuff that was in there. He was getting mail about the killing and the stealing and about Exodus in particular had a demon creature on the cover on the box that was drawing out the Bible Belt types. He was discovering that there was some pushback, probably a minority, but a vocal minority, as these type of groups tend to be, that were unhappy with some of what was in there. It's not stuff that he'd even thought about, because that's what we were talking about before. He wasn't thinking in terms of world building, of story, of the impact of actions. He was just basically saying, here's a game system, here's a game system, here's a game system. Let's mix them all together and we have a game. He's thinking like a board game or an RPG designer. I mean, D&D is a big influence. He's not thinking in terms of action, motivation, good and evil, whether it's a good thing to steal in order to buy the food you need to go explore the dungeons and kill the big bad. He's not thinking about that kind of thing. And so getting some of this fan mail got him thinking about that. According to uh, the official book of Ultima, which was a book written right around the time Ultima 6 was released that kind of chronicled the series and had some history in it, he came to a decision that if people were going to find motivations and morality guidelines or that kind of thing in his games, whether he put them in there or not, then he should go ahead and put something in there. People are going to find hidden meaning in his stuff. Don't make it hidden. Just put right out there what he wants to say and what he thinks life should be about. I think this aspect of it, though, I'm sure it happened. I'm not in any way calling him a liar for any of that, because I think it's true. I mean, I believe him. I do think that he's kind of overemphasized that point a bit. When you hear him talk about it, it feels like that was the entire point of Ultima Four from the get-go. I don't think it was. I think it's something that made its way in gradually, probably, as he was working on the game probably as more of these fan letters were coming in and he was thinking about what he wanted to do. It seems like a lot of the core gameplay was really going to be very much like a more traditional Ultima game in the beginning with just the addition of an idea that you are leveling yourself up in a different kind of way. As he was involved in this kind of whole self-discovery of himself, he got very much into exploring other religions. He was never particularly religious, to my understanding. His father was not religious at all, scientist, astronaut. His mother, he is described as only moderately religious, which I take to mean that she attended church, but it's not like she was going to get dogmatic on how one should live their life or something like that. Even though neither of his parents were too religious, though, they did believe for whatever reason, I don't know why, whether they just thought that learning about religious beliefs and religious organizations is good for getting perspective, or whether they felt it was necessary when you live in a state like Texas, if you're going to be connected with the community, to be involved with religion to at least some degree. But they did attend church and have their children attend church and actually attend Sunday school as well. 
the church they went to was not an evangelical church or a Baptist church or some other sect that is very narrow and rigid and dogmatic in its beliefs, but was actually interdenominational. It brought in a wide array of perspectives, I believe even some perspective that was kind of outside of Christianity as well, from other religions. So he was very interested in the idea of religious belief systems and religious codes and all of this stuff, even though he himself was not particularly religious. He got into Hinduism, not as a practicing Hindu, but just in terms of becoming interested in the belief system. And he got kind of interested in the idea of yogis and the mysticism that surrounds them, not just their quest for spiritual enlightenment, but the claims that would often follow around prominent yogis, prominent religious leaders, that they had abilities to control their body, to control their mind that were gained through meditation, yoga, and all of this other stuff. He didn't have a really good, clear, accurate <laughs> conception of how all this stuff worked. It's more that he was picking up a little bit here, picking up a little bit there, and almost making it up as he went along, so to speak, kind of getting a little bit from here, a little bit from there. Some of it's true, some of it's a little distorted, synthesizing it in his mind kind of coming up with his own philosophical idea about what this meant. According to an interview that he gave in late 1983 to Softline, this is critical because this is pretty early in Ultima IV's development. Ultima IV does not come out until 1985. He gave this interview discussing what was going to go on in Ultima IV very early in the development process, so this is kind of a window into where his mind was at at the time. He discussed how he was going to create a game where you had 16, at this time it was 16, attributes that you would improve over the course of the game. He didn't name them, it's just a, an interview. This was based on the idea that he had come up with, that he had internalized, which, like I said, isn't necessarily strictly accurate, but it's the way he internalized it, that yogis, that these spiritual individuals recognize a variety of attributes and spend their life trying to improve them, some of them physical, some of them mental, by engaging in yoga, meditation, and whatever else, they achieve enlightenment by raising these attributes. That's kind of the basics of where the system started. It's still very much drawing on a very D&D &D kind of idea of you have attributes it's just they're not strength, dexterity, constitution this time. You're leveling them up. I realize that in D&D, &D, improving your level and improving your attributes are two separate things, but it's still kind of this similar concept of I'm leveling up and improving my character, but it's bringing in some of this Eastern mysticism that had started to really fascinate him in this period, if that kind of makes sense. I think that makes sense. He took a lot of different ideas, concepts, mauled them over in his mind, came up with something that he thought, okay, let's take the D&D &D where we know that's fun, we like that, let's bring in some other attributes so we can have something else to level up, and try to figure out how to weave in these concepts from all of these different belief systems that I like and enjoy and think others would enjoy into this and integrate it all into some sort of cohesive game. Exactly. The culminating event in all of this 
which he has talked about a few times, mostly in older interviews, is that he was watching a documentary just on television about the Dead Sea Scrolls. No one's been able to track down what this documentary was, despite the fact that it was the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are Hebrew text, Old Testament. Somehow it got from there to talking about Jesus. It's not a huge stretch, but of course Jesus has nothing to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. From there it went off on a small tangent. It wasn't the major part of it, but it went off on a small tangent about how some Hindus, some people in India, believe that during the unrecorded years of Jesus' life, the years between 12 and 32 or 33, whatever it was, where there is no record of him in Scripture, that he actually spent some time in India learning some of the spiritual ways there and gaining self-enlightenment there, that he was recognized in India as an avatar, which is a concept that is very present in Hinduism, the idea of a god assuming a human form to come down to earth. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on Hinduism, so I'm not going to try to get too deep in an explanation there or I'll get into trouble. That's the basic idea of an avatar, is a vessel for a god come down to earth in human form, which, of course, is what Jesus kind of is in Trinitarian Christian belief as well, the idea that he's the son of God. Now, it's more complicated than that, and I'm not a Christian theologian either, so I'm not going to go too far down that path or I'll get us in trouble. The point is, this concept of Jesus as the son of God or a part of the Christian God-made flesh and this idea of a Hindu avatar melded together, which is what led some to come to the conclusion that Jesus himself may have been an avatar. All of this kind of gets mixed up in Richard's head with the idea of enlightenment and the 16 ways you can purify yourself, which become the 16 attributes of the game he's working on, Ultima 4. He comes to synthesize a system in his own head, which I think is largely his own creation. I don't mean that he was deliberately trying to make something fictional. It's just the way he internalized some of these Hindu beliefs got mixed up with other things, and he came up with his own interpretation that wasn't strictly accurate, but it was for him. As he said in this interview, he said these yogis have a belief that there are 16 ways you could purify yourself. Some of them are physical. Some of them are spiritual. As Richard himself put it, the 16th way to purify yourself was to become one with God. When you become one with God, you ascend to the status of an avatar. That's not what an avatar is. There is no basis for that being what an avatar is. Who knows how Richard got this idea in his head from all of these various sources he's digesting. But to him, that's what an avatar was. Someone who had so purified themselves through all of these steps that they have become one with a god, or have, in a sense, almost become a god themselves. That is the status of Avatar. Kind of this combination of this documentary, of other stuff he's reading, of his childhood being raised with an interdenominational Sunday school that went far afield in talking about different belief systems. All of this gets jumbled in his head, and we get this concept of Avatar, which, of course, is then central, which is why I've spent so much time rambling on about it, to the entire rest of the Ultima series, starting with Ultima 4. We've got these two threads now, and I'm honestly not sure where they intersect. This is what I mean by 
we don't really know the order anymore because when Richard talks about this today, he really doesn't talk anymore about this idea that he had created for himself of what an avatar is and how one becomes an avatar and how it's tied into Hinduism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't really talk about that or emphasize that so much anymore. It's good that we have this interview from 1983 because it gives us a look into his mindset at that point in history, which is not a mindset that I think he still holds to today. We have that thread, and we know that the game is coming from that. But it feels like at this point it's kind of more of a good and evil thing or a battle between good and evil. It's not necessarily about you being moral. And I'm speculating some because he never gave a detailed description of the game at this stage of its completion. So maybe some of the morality stuff was already in there. I don't know. From the little description we have, it feels like it was less about a complete morality system as it was about we're still just going around and exploring dungeons, defeating monsters and finding treasures in order to level ourselves up. It's just that it's presented in this form of purifying yourself to become an avatar. The final fight of this game was going to be based on Dante's Inferno, which he was also reading at this time, which had also captivated him. He was not a reader. As he said himself in interviews at this time, the same interview, he said that you could probably count on one hand, essentially, the books he's read. He's not a reader. But he did read, whether for research for the game or just as part of his personal quest for understanding the world, I don't know. But he read Dante's Inferno. Might have read the whole cycle, but uh, he at least definitely read the Inferno part of the Divine Comedy and was taken with the idea of the Nine Circles of Hell. The goal of the game at this point was going to be once you achieved enlightenment by purifying yourself with these 16 attributes, you would descend into hell, into the layers of hell, and have a final confrontation of some kind with some kind of big bad. I mean, he doesn't go into detail at this time in the ninth circle of hell, and then you would win the game. Now, those of you that have played Ultima 4, including Jeffrey, I, I know we're already thinking, well, yeah, that sounds like the Stygian Abyss, all right. To be honest, I never beat any Ultima, so I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so Ultima 4 in its final form, it has you level up all of your virtues, and then you have to descend into the Stygian Abyss to acquire the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom. That's the MacGuffin. That's the final thing you have to do. But it's really vestigial. It's It really feels like the weighty part of the game is actually achieving enlightenment and becoming the embodiment of the Avatar. The final quest is just there because you need some kind of end state to the game. It feels like, from what little we see from this interview, that it was going to probably, and this is speculation a little bit, but it was probably going to be another one of these power up your character and defeat the big bad, just like you defeated Mondain and, and Minax and, and Exodus in the previous three titles. It was going to take place in hell. That's why I don't think that he had this full idea of morality and of a virtue system being the core of the game at this early stage. I imagine that this is where the second thread kind of came in, this other thread of Richard is unhappy, Richard is trying to figure out who he is, and Richard is starting to get fan mail now that he's at his own company. He's starting to see what some of the criticisms were of the earlier games in regards to the stealing and the murdering and the demons on the box and all of that kind of thing. I think that's what kind of takes it towards this turn of, I should say something. Instead of having all of these people decide that because they're stealing in the game, that says something about me and what I believe about stealing, I need to come up with a system, come up with a manner of playing the game 
where you know what I feel about stealing because I make a statement about stealing. Spoiler alert, it's bad. (laughs) It's not just a matter of can you steal from the shop. Ultima 4 has little morality challenges all throughout it. There's a blind shopkeeper that you can buy stuff from and you can shortchange him because he's blind and he can't see what you're giving him. You're actually allowed to shortchange him. But if you do, you take a hit to your virtue, to your honesty. Later in the game, when you really need this guy for a particular thing, you might not get the help you need. He's making a statement on stealing. Gradually, I think, over this period, this idea of these Hindu virtues and this Hindu idea of Avatar gets merged with this need to do this morality, and he starts to refactor it around this idea of being virtuous. Now, of course, the final game doesn't have 16, which would have just been way too unwieldy. The final game has 8. The way he came up with that is actually kind of interesting, too, because he kind of had to go back to the drawing board when he starts, I think, taking it in this moral direction. Once again, you know, we've talked before, we talked in the early Ultimas, how everything he thinks is cool and interesting kind of gets thrown into an Ultima game in the early days. There are TIE Fighters, essentially, in Ultima 1. There's a Time Lord in Ultima 3. Ultima 2 is the movie Time Bandits. Not plot point for plot point, but as a basis for what he's doing, because those are things he found cool at the time. The more mature Richard here is not going to go willy-nilly on that anymore. You don't see any of this random sci-fi stuff so much appearing in the later Ultimas because he's starting to think more about a world and worldview. He's still not immune to this idea of engaging with popular culture and taking stuff that he thinks is interesting and putting it in. One night he's watching The Wizard of Oz, the classic film, The Wizard of Oz, he comes to the conclusion or the realization, if you want to put it in grander terms, that the three companions of Dorothy, a tin man, scarecrow, lion, that are on their quest for a brain and a heart and courage, (laughs) courage, are really on a quest for truth, knowledge, truth, brain, Love, heart, emotion, love, and courage. He decides that these are universal. These could be seen as universal virtues, like the core virtues of a human. Truth, love, courage. Then those become his three core virtues in a new system that he starts to build out. Then he starts to build out combinations of the three. It's almost like creating a Venn diagram. The three circles of his Venn diagram are truth, love, courage. Then he starts playing with what the combinations would look like. Love and courage in his mind, and this is just his system. I mean, he's just coming up with this. You can think it's brilliant or think it's hooey, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. But he decides that love and courage is the virtue of sacrifice. Because if you're courageous, you're going to stand and fight. You're going to stand up for others. You're going to be on the front lines helping make the world a better place. If you love someone, you will do anything in your power to help that person, protect that person. Someone who is both courageous and who deeply loves someone or something will sacrifice themselves for that person or will, even if it's not as dramatic as killing yourself to save them, even if it's just 
saying, well, you know, we don't have much food. We don't have much money for food, so I'll eat very little and I'll make sure you get enough, whatever it is. The idea of sacrifice is the idea of being courageous enough to do something that is going to be a hardship for you and doing it on behalf of someone else who you care about. There's the love. So then he starts connecting these virtues in these different manners. It really is a Venn diagram, but he ends up kind of with a star, a pointed star that almost looks like a star of David, though he wasn't necessarily going for a Judaism metaphor there. Exodus is a major concept in Judaism, obviously, and and in the Bible, the book of Exodus. He didn't choose Exodus because of its connection to the Bible or to the Jewish experience in the Middle East. He chose the word Exodus because it was a cool word. I think he chose the star because it was a cool-looking symbol. Well, it's not so much that. He actually explains this in a detailed video of how the symbol came about. I'll throw a link to this thing if I can still find it. You have the three circles to have truth, love, and courage right in the center of your diagram. Tangent to all three principles is their core. So love, you have compassion, truth, honesty, courage, you have valor. Mm -hmm. Courage tempered with love or love tempered with courage, sacrifice, courage, and truth. That gets you honor, Mm -hmm. truth, and love, justice. If we take all three principles, that means Okay, we're trying to achieve some form of spirituality. That's all three. That's in the center, and there's a little circle in the center there. Exactly. If you take none of the principles, you have something negative. I forget what he called it, but then you take its opposite, and that's humility. That encompasses the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You get this really interesting diagram that's a circle, a bunch of triangles on it that does look vaguely Star of David-ish, but it's not quite there. You have extra lines and all this other stuff. I'll show a link into the show notes where he describes this, but it's just an interesting symbol, and for any fan of Ultima knows this as this is the symbol of the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom, because mm-hmm. you got the principles, and everything stems from that. Absolutely. You know, then there's another symbol that becomes very associated with things, and that's the Ankh that comes very associated with Ultima, and it's it's the same kind of thing. I mean, it, it has a prior religious significance, but he wasn't strictly choosing it because of that. He wanted some kind of cool representative symbol. He liked the fact that an Ankh was similar to a Christian cross, but it wasn't a Christian cross. He did have some vague idea that the Ankh in Egyptian mythology had something to do with rebirth. The uh, whole milieu of Ultima Four about gaining enlightenment is like a spiritual rebirth. He also incorporates the Ankh as a very important symbol in Ultima Four as well. It's drawing from a lot of sources. It's a little half-baked, but there are worse systems <laughs> of living a good life out there. So, I mean, he was never trying to found a cult or a movement or a self-help group. It's not like he's trying to be a guru. But there are people that have very much took this system to heart. It's not a bad system to take to heart. I mean, there are worse systems out there. So that's kind of how we get... Ultima Four. That's how we get this idea that your quest is to achieve enlightenment. You achieve enlightenment by living a life in accordance with the eight virtues. Doing so gets you points, because this is still a role-playing game. In those virtues, living against those virtues loses you points. Once you have enough points and you know the special words, you can locate the shrine dedicated to each of these eight virtues, worship at the shrine by using the magic word, and gain 
mastery, essentially, over that virtue. And then once you have reached enlightenment with all eight virtues, you can descend into the Stygian Abyss and find the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom, which is the MacGuffin. I mean, there's there's no purpose to it, like I said, other than that it ends the game. So that's how you win. That's its purpose. There's no big bad to defeat this time. You know, it still has the trappings of an Ultima game. Like I said, you have to discover the magic words, the mystical words, whatever, and then you have to discover the shrines and pray in the shrines. So you have the same kind of breadcrumb that he really refined in Ultima 3, refined even a little more this time, where you have conversations with NPCs, you have certain keywords you can use to talk to the NPCs, and then the NPC responses will have certain keywords in them. They're not highlighted. You don't know what they are. That comes later in the series, but in Ultima 4, they're not. You just have to look at what the response was from the NPC, and you can pick out a word from there and type it back in and see if that gets you another response. There's no way you know until you try. (laughs) It's kind of like a parser in an adventure game, but it's a little more primitive than that because it really just keyword indexing (laughs) rather than having a more complex dialogue with your parser to try to perform actions. Actions are performed in other ways. So it's still got that breadcrumb thing where you're looking for NPCs, talking to NPCs, figuring things out. It also still has dungeons and it still has fights. You still have a party of characters. It's a bigger party than ever before. There are seven other characters because they embody these seven other virtues. Sometimes you can't even recruit them until you have enough points in that virtue as well. So you can get a party. You don't have to adventure with them all, but you can. There are still monsters to fight, experience to gain. You still need food. In fact, if you run away from monsters, you can actually lose points and valors. There's a lot of interplay between the systems, but what makes the game different is that everything you do is judged. Sometimes rather obtusely, it can be hard when you're just playing the game with no walkthrough, no anything else, to kind of know when you're going to gain points and lose points. It's not like the manual gives you all of that. So it can feel a bit arbitrary in that sense, but... Basically, everything you do, fighting monsters, running away from monsters, helping people, not helping people, stealing, not stealing, will raise and lower your points in a particular virtue. And so by pushing you in this way, it's creating a morality system, it's creating a code that you're supposed to live by, at least within the confines of the game. And that is truly revolutionary in role-playing games. There was really nothing like that before, and in some ways there hasn't even been since. Even most games that have a morality system today, and many RPGs do because of the influence of Ultima IV in large part, it's often more binary and less multifaceted than what you find in Quest of the Avatar, Ultima IV. It's a very interesting game. It had a lot more grayness to some of your moral choices which becomes more pronounced as the series goes on if you want to try out the game i will have a link in the show notes to a free copy of ultima 4 that you can download and play off of good old games it is free you can play around with the system yourself a little bit and just sort of experience how things were back in the day absolutely So the other part of this that is really interesting, so we've got the traditional Ultima, we've got the tile-based overworld map, which is way bigger than ever before, 256 by 256 instead of 64 by 64. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's much larger world. You have the largest world that's ever been seen in the series so far. You have the slightly upgraded parser, the talking to characters to find things. You're killing monsters. You're exploring dungeons. You're doing all of this. That's one layer. 
Then on top of that, you have the new layer, which is this morality system that we just talked about with the virtues. But the other thing is he really did want this to be a game where you felt like you were you in this world. And that's kind of always been the conceit of the Ultima games. In the earlier Ultima games, you were the stranger. There was this kind of understanding that you were not someone that was native to this world and you were coming in, you were summoned in and helping deal with these problems. Now they make this very explicit by having it begin in the way that you parodied at the top of the episode, which is that you have been summoned to serve as an example of enlightenment for this world. In story terms, because he is starting to think a little bit about story now, though it's never pays to get too deep into the lore of Ultima, because even though the individual games or the individual trilogies can have some interesting story beats, if you try to truly connect them all and make something coherent out of it, you're going to end up with a lot of headcanon and a lot of tangential explanations to try to make it all make sense. He comes up with this idea that you are you on our world, on our Earth. Just forget about the fact that Ultima 2 took place on Earth, not important. You are being brought in by Lord British, who is now at this point not just one of many kings across the land, but is actually a person who has unified the land and brought an end to the Age of Darkness, which is kind of what the first three Ultimas are now considered to have taken place in, and brought in light and harmony to the world. Because he did that, this world was renamed from Sosaria, which is what it's called in the first and third games, to Britannia in recognition of Lord British. This is the game where the concept of Britannia is introduced, uh, which, of course, is what stays constant throughout the rest of it. So when he pulls you in, you don't just do the normal roll virtual dice for tributes, pick a race, pick a class, pick a whatever. Richard really wanted you to feel like this was you, that this conceit that you're being pulled into this other world is real. And he wanted the character you played to reflect your own core belief structure already existing. He did something really interesting that I know you can talk about some, Jeffrey, because even though you didn't finish the Ultima games, you sure as heck started them. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about character creation for those that don't know in Ultima 4. In Ultima 4, you have a gypsy, a fortune teller, and says, I'm going to give you two choices that put two of the virtues in conflict and you have to choose one. Mm -hmm. You come across a beggar. Do you sacrifice and give the beggar money? And food? Or do you just show compassion? Help the beggar up. Take him to a shelter and stuff. Do you value mm -hmm. compassion? Or do you value sacrifice more? It pits every one of these together. Whichever one you reject, it's gone. It disappears. Until we come down to one virtue that you most embody. Which one do you most follow? That dictate your starting stats, and that dictates your starting class, especially in the later games. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's an interesting system. It was meant to be an extension of this idea that you are in this game. You are living by your principles. In order to beat the game, you have to bend to Richard's principles as well, obviously, or you'll never level up all the virtues in the way you need to. But it's the idea that you're coming into this game with a character that shares a worldview similar to your own. And that's kind of an interesting idea. I think these are kind of the reasons that Ultima 4 stands out. I mean, if you just look at Ultima 4, as a game. It's a nightmare. What I mean by this is the world is gigantic. The 
clues you need to traverse this world and find what you need, both in terms of locations and passwords for shrines, are not readily apparent. You have to talk to NPCs to get hints. As we talked about in regards to Ultima 3, sometimes these NPCs are hard to see and find because a lot of these places where they reside, a lot of these towns and whatnot are very big, they're tile-based, and there are line-of-sight blockers. Buildings and other obstacles will block line-of-sight. You have to traverse practically every tile of some of these places, and you might still miss the guy that's wandering around in one corner of the map in the bushes because you thought you looked at that square because you got your character near there, but it turns out that that square was actually line of sight blocked, and so you thought you had explored it in your head. Then, once you talk to this person, you have to figure out what words to say to them in order for them to give you more information. There's no instruction guide with a complete list of verbs. There's no highlighting of verbs. They do add that in later games. You have to guess which ones are going to work or just literally type in every last word and see what happens. It's a game where you're really set adrift and there are no walkthroughs, there's no internet, there's no let's plays. It's just you and the game. It's a mess. It's a nightmare. At least by modern standards, it's that age of discovery again. We had that with Ultima 1, 2, and 3 where... Part of the fun of the game is just exploring and discovering. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I found this bartender that tells me what this plot is. Oh, in Ultima 3, if I say this word here, I get more information about where I need to go. In Ultima 4, I do have a little bit more structure to it because Lord British goes, Hey, you, go become the Avatar and find all these virtues and (laughs) purify yourself and become godlike. You go off and you start talking to people like, Hey, virtue? 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 Oh, yeah, I know about virtues. I learned about honesty off at honesty school. (laughs) We always sat down and talked about a certain mantra. Mantra? What mantra? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yes, mantra. Yes, we always said (laughs) om for some reason because we wanted to meditate (laughs) on honesty. That's probably not the right mantra and probably not the right one. Right, right. Apologies to diehard Ultima fans. The point stands is that Yes, from a modern perspective, and that's where a little bit of, for lack of a better term, ethnocentrism comes in. We're coming at it from 2021 here. This game came out 30 some odd years ago. There's a lot that changed between then and now, especially in the computer sphere and what's acceptable, that, that, and the other thing. Back then, when Alex and I were younger, spending a long time exploring, discovering, That was fun. Mm -hmm. You weren't sitting there trying to, okay, how fast can I beat this game so I can beat it in a weekend so I can get my next game going? No. You sat down and you really played around with a game for a very, very long time. You mulled over problems. I think what I did originally, because I wanted to sort of play a little bit of the Ultimas in a traditional sense, I actually had a notebook and I would write down clues and stuff, what I found to be keywords, what I found to be the mantras, what I found to be this, that, and the other thing. Okay, in Britannia, I got this clue. In this other place, I got this other clue. I drew out maps. That was something that was common back then. Mm-hmm. People really got involved. Yeah, I know you say, Alex, that it's a nightmare, but I think that's a nightmare from today's perspective and the way we approach video games. I think in the time, it was not a nightmare. It was something that was challenging. You had just enough of a head start to go, okay, I have a goal. I know what I'm looking for. I'm a smart person. I can try and figure that out. 
that's also emblematic of PC players back then because we've kept saying before, PC players are willing to solve a puzzle. They're willing to put in that really hard thinking effort to figure out how something works. How does this computer work? Believe me, IRQ hell on a computer is not fun to deal with. (laughs) If you're willing to solve that and have that effort, you're going to do that same thing for a game like Ultimate that involves a lot more thinking, a lot more puzzle solving, a lot more time investment. Absolutely. And and that's the point that I was going to make as well, is that from our perspective, it's a nightmare. But from the perspective of the time, it was exciting. It was thrilling. It was bigger and more mysterious and more interesting than anything else you could get. I mean, honestly, my guess is that very few people actually beat Ultima 4 back in the day. It is not an easy game. And, and the difficulty isn't in terms of twitch reflexes or stat building or whatnot. The difficulty is in figuring out how you gain and lose points, making sure you have enough points, finding that one person that has that one clue that you need to advance because it's not always obvious. It was difficult enough that I doubt many people actually beat it, and I I mean that. I really don't think many people did, but they sure enjoyed the journey. You're a good example of that, Jeffrey. Like you said, you've never really beat any of these Ultima games yourself, but I can tell that there are still games that clearly mean something to you, still games that you clearly enjoyed interacting with. One thing I've always said is I enjoy a good story. I enjoy lore. So I've always been, especially with the middle set of Ultimas that we're talking about right now, 4, 5, and 6, just sort of the story that was built up around it, the legends, the concepts. Like Richard, when I first discovered Ultima, I was in my late teens, early 20s. I was certainly trying to find myself to an extent. And it's like, there's an interesting morality system here that's presented. I can certainly relate to that and understand it. And I enjoy it. And I enjoyed how in our next game here, Ultima 5, where you have the Shadow Lords come in, where you have the corruption of these virtues going on. And you have to go out there and purify everything. Just seeing how Richard takes the concept of the virtues, something that's great and raised up really well, and he does this throughout the next two games and in the final trilogy set of twisting things around, twisting the virtues in different interesting ways in order to tell a compelling story. Absolutely. It really resonated with a lot of people. It was a massive hit. It took a long time to create. It was two years until it was released in 1985, but it sold hundreds of thousands of units, as many as 400,000 probably by the time it was all said and done, but that was after several years of being on the market. Its first couple of years on the market, it sold like 300,000 units. I mean, it was huge. It really resonated. And this is at a time when the Apple II was being superseded by other platforms as well. Obviously, they did ports. It, It didn't only appear on the Apple II, but... The Apple II was the lead system, and even in a time when the Apple II was starting to decline, this really brought things in. This is the game that made Origin a success. This is the game that made Ultima, Ultima. Yes, the others had sold fine, particularly Ultima Three, but this is truly when Ultima became Ultima, and when Richard Garriott became the true rock star of computer RPGs. We had talked before how it had been in this fierce competition with Wizardry, and at times was the less successful game between the two series. 
at the same time Ultima 4 was great, Wizardry 4 was, as we discussed in our Surtech episode, was on its way towards becoming a disaster, and Wizardry kind of fell by the wayside while Ultima continued to push forward. That brings us then to, of course, the sequel, Ultima 5, and the first time where Richard is really trying to connect ideas that he's had between the games and create something larger and more interesting. And there's a couple of uh, big events that happen surrounding Ultima 5 that I think play a large part in allowing it to take the basic systems in Ultima 4 and to a large degree really grow them and improve on them. Now, there's a lot of debate, I think, between people that like Ultima 4 more and Ultima 5 more. I would say Ultima 5 is the better put-together game, though there's something about Ultima 4 and the way it presents this complete morality system and how deeply ingrained that morality system is through every gameplay decision that you make that certainly is not completely replicated in Ultima 5. The virtue system's still there, the character creation is still similar, but it's a little bit shallower. So I'm not sure you can really say one is better than the other, but I think you can say that Ultima 5 is a more polished experience overall. A big part of that is because of what was happening in computer technology and computer game creation generally and around Origin in particular, because this is the period of time when the New Hampshire experience just becomes so unbearable that he finally said, this cannot happen. This cannot be this way anymore. I am completely unhappy. So Robert agrees that Richard, not the company, but he alone, maybe a couple of hand-picked helpers, can relocate someplace else. The company's still going to be in New Hampshire. The majority of the employees and the developers and everything else will be in New Hampshire, but Richard can leave because he is just miserable. So he chooses to relocate to Austin, which is his happy place. You know, it's a quirky city. It's got the Society for Creative Anachronism chapter that he's a part of. He has friends and contacts there. It's the home of Steve Jackson Games, and he's been friends with some of the designers and artists and whatnot that that circle. He's friends with Steve Jackson himself, for instance. It's the place that he feels he most belongs. He relocates to Austin, and then over time, as we discussed in our origin episode, more and more people join him there, and eventually Robert has to see the writing on the wall and the whole company moves to Austin. He's back in his comfort zone. He's back in Austin. For the first time, he's realizing that these games are so big now that he cannot program it and design it all by himself like he did before. Ultima 4 had some problems. It was buggy. It was not well-balanced in places. There was a sense that these games were so big now that Richard could not do it all himself. This is something that everyone was discovering in the mid-1980s. That's why Ultima, as we talked about in the first episode, is kind of a good overview of how the entire industry was developing and maturing in this period. In the beginning, Richard is this bedroom coder. He's coding as a hobby. He makes a couple of things that are kind of cool, and it's like, hey, I'll sell these. Oh, look, there's a publisher. Hey, Mr. Publisher, here's my game. Go sell it for me. Then he gets a little older, he gets a little success. He's like, well, I want to control my own destiny. I'll have my own company now, but I'm still making these games myself with little bits and pieces of help here and there, like Ken Arnold doing music and the tile-based stuff and, you know, occasional other help. But basically, Richard's doing this himself. It's more professional. It's less bedroom coder, more I have a company, I'm making games. Now we're getting kind of the next phase of both Ultima and the wider industry, which is like games are too big for one or even two people. 
we need a team of some kind now. The interesting thing about Ultima 5 from this perspective is that for the first time, Richard does almost none of the programming. Origin is growing as a company. Origin has more programmers, artists, designers, etc. While Richard is still designing the game and coming up with the systems and coming up with how it all works together, the story, the themes, and all of that, he is no longer the programmer. Instead, there are two employees of the company that take on the vast majority of the programming duties. And these were uh, Steve Muse and John Miles. Still on the Apple II, like all the games have been in the past. Still based on the work Richard had done previously, but Steve Muse and John Miles take over the programming. Muse, for the first time, creates tools to make it easier to create game content. This is kind of the period of time where this stuff is becoming complex enough that you don't just want to do everything with a hex editor, which is basically what Richard had been doing on all the previous games, was creating everything using a basic hex editor. That's fine and good if you're a master programmer, but what we're starting to see now is as these games become bigger and you want more people contributing to these games, it's not a good idea to make everyone use basic machine language basic hex editor, basic this, basic that. I don't mean basic in terms of the programming language. I mean basic in terms of primitive. I would say very, very low-level programming. Exactly. It is low-level programming. You don't want everyone on the metal because only a small number of people can work really quickly, efficiently, and well at that level. You're cutting off a lot of your talent base. A lot of your creator base can't necessarily do that heavy, intense, low-level programming, but they may still be very fine programmers. It's just that it would be better if they had something that was a little more intuitive, had a better interface. Or, in some cases, you might even have somebody that really doesn't know anything about programming, doesn't want to learn anything about programming, but you can at least teach some basic scripting. So if you create a tool that allows a lot of tasks to be accomplished through basic scripting rather than full-on programming, then that person may be able to take part. You see more and more in this time period the start of the creation of tools where a really good low-level programmer that really knows how a machine works and really knows how to get the most out of the machine, comes up with a set of tools that hides all of that low-level programming from the user and allows them to achieve the same effect by typing in simpler commands or clicking on a few simple interface pieces, etc., instead of putting in all that work. This is the beginning of the creation of something called the Ultimate Creation Package, which was created by Steve Muse, which allowed for creating elements of the world, putting in encounters and NPCs and animations and whatever else without having to do that low-level programming, allowing a wider group of people over time to be able to contribute to the games. And then also a John Miles then does a lot of the programming on the game itself. The plus side was that now that Richard didn't have to program the games, he actually got to think about game systems and story more. Because Richard was a programmer first. This was even true as he was giving up more and more responsibility. He started by figuring out what the game systems would be and how things would be programmed. And then he would layer story, character, dialogue, everything else on top. Logically speaking, you would think you would work the other way around. You'd figure out what you want to do, what your story should be, what your characters are going to be, and then figure out how to program it. But he would come up with the system first and then do the rest of that. 
because he had to do the programming himself, that meant that some of this other stuff like game balance, game systems, story, characters, plot, took a back seat, were secondary. By the time he got to them, he didn't have as much time to work on that, and so that stuff was undercooked, underdeveloped. Ultima Five was the first time that he really started to think about balancing all of this stuff, making the combat system make sense, making the spell system sort of make sense, though it, it gets kind of convoluted. It gets better later. But making the story deeper, less black and white and more gray. It's really because he's starting to use a larger team that he's able to make all of this happen. This played out in a couple of different ways. One big improvement and something that becomes kind of central to Ultima games going forward is that now that he's freed up from having to do every last little bit of programming of every last thing himself, but a lot of stuff can be accomplished through tools and just through the aid of other programmers, he decides to really focus in on all of the items in the game. And this is where the beginning of the philosophy in the games of if it's in the game, you should be able to do something with it takes hold. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when I say that in relation to Ultima games. It gets into the concept of, for lack of better term, inventory hell. <laughs> Ooh, I can pick up this. I can pick up that. I can pick up the bread. I can pick up this rock. I can pick up this guy's ring. I can pick up this stool. Okay, now I have one main bag, which has a whole bunch of sub-bags, which each have a sub-bag. Um, which bag has the quest item in it? Yeah, but there's the idea that if there's an item in the game, you should be able to interact with it, and it should be able to do something. That doesn't mean it necessarily does something that's helpful to beating the game, but it should be able to do something. If there's a chair there, you should be able to sit in it. If there's a telescope, you should be able to look through it and see the heavens moving, which you actually can do in Ultima 5. If there's a torch on the wall, you should be able to take that torch and use it as a torch later. This is something that kind of reaches its most mature form in Ultima 7, which obviously we're not getting to today, but the roots of it are here in Ultima 5, this idea that if it's an object in the world, it should have agency and purpose. The other part of this is that he comes up with schedules for all the NPCs. Instead of the NPCs just standing around in a certain spot or maybe on a very limited walking path around a very limited certain spot, all of the NPCs in the game have a routine. Time is implemented in the game, day-night, and characters will be in different places at different times of day. They'll move around the world on a schedule. Tons of games do that today. That doesn't sound very impressive necessarily by the standards of 2021, but that was a pretty big deal in 1988, which is when Ultima 5 ultimately comes out. The game has fewer NPCs, actually, than Ultima 4 does. This is one area where the game is actually smaller than the game that came before, but the main reason for that is that each of these NPCs have their own path through the game world. You can follow them around to learn things and stuff like that very deep gameplay systems for that period of time and systems that I don't think that he would have been able to implement if he was still stuck doing all the programming in addition to all the game design. The other area, of course, that he really got to focus some attention on was story. Ultima V is very interesting in the way it extends the ideas of Ultima 4, because Ultima 4 introduced the virtues and said that this 
is the code you should live by. If you are a truly good person, you should be following all of these virtues in this way that the game dictates because you get points that you need to beat the game for doing the things the game wants you to do, for living the way the game wants you to, and you lose points if you live in a way contrary to what the game says. As I said, Richard was interested in spirituality and religion on a certain level, but he was not a member of a church. He was not dogmatic. He had a beef with the moral majority, with the Christian right, with these dogmatic groups that did tell you these are the morals and this is how you have to live. He approached Ultima Five from the perspective of, okay, I've told you you have these virtues and these virtues are great and you should follow them, but don't just kind of blindly follow them to the exclusion of all else and take them too far. Lord British leads an expedition and goes missing. In his absence, his regent, a new character, Blackthorn, is ruling over Britannia. Unlike other games in the series, Blackthorn is not meant to be a cackling evil villain. In fact, spoiler alert for a 30-year-old game, at the end of the game, he actually realizes what a horrible thing he's done, and he accepts his punishment stoically. He is not a bad guy that came to power through subterfuge and was trying to pervert the teachings of Lord British or of the Codex. He genuinely wanted the people of Britannia to live their best possible lives. What better way to do that than to live by the virtues? Let's codify that in order to make sure that you, citizen, follow these virtues. And if you're not following these virtues, then obviously... You're doing something bad, and we need to do some sort of system of justice in order to punish you for that. Actually, if I recall the game a bit, I do believe the Shadow Lords are influencing Blackthorn to make him pervert the virtues a little bit here. Right, but it was never his intent. He had good purpose, and he became corrupted. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Exactly. So yes, he came up with a code of virtue because... If everyone is living their best life by following the virtues, then we need to make sure you live by the virtues to live your best life. Thou shalt give to the poor, or thou shalt have no money. Thou shalt tell the truth, or thou shalt lose thy tongue. Exactly. So he creates the code of virtues, because it's for your own good. It's not so much punishment as correction to make sure you live your best life. And this is what dogmatic groups believe when they tell you to live a certain way, that it's for your own good. That's why if they're harsh to you when you fail, it's not because they're being cruel or mean, it's because they're trying to help you. It's very insidious. You kind of hinted at it, but Blackthorn creates the code of virtue. Thou shalt not lie, or thou shalt lose thy tongue. Thou shalt help those in need, or thou shalt suffer the same need. Thou shalt fight to the death if challenged, or thou shalt be banished as a coward. Thou shalt confess to thy crime and suffer its just punishment, or thou shalt be put to death. Thou shalt donate half of thy income to charity, or thou shalt have no income. If thou dost lose thine own honor, thou shalt take thy own life. Thou shalt enforce the laws of virtue, or thou shalt die as a heretic. Thou shalt humble thyself to thy superiors, or thou shalt suffer their wrath. Each virtue taken to its extreme with a punishment for failing to do so just as extreme. Well, Lord British is missing, and your usual other friends like Iolo, they've basically become outlaws because they're fighting against this dogmatic view of the virtues. 
It's them that come and get you and bring you back because that's part of the conceit of these games is that you are you from another planet from here and you are brought to Britannia when Britannia needs you. It's not like you're living there in between games. You're living your own life. You come in and you have to defeat this oppressive regime as well as go and and defeat and destroy the Shadow Lords that are, as you said, influencing all of this bad stuff to happen. It makes you make some decisions. He wanted this game to be gray. He did not want this to be black and white. It was all about exploring the limits of virtue. So you have to make some tough calls. There is one point where you need critical information where the guy will not give it to you unless you betray somebody, one of your own comrades, to get it. There's another time where Blackthorn captures Eolo. We haven't talked about Eolo as much as some of the others, but this is a character that goes all the way back to the beginning, and like so many characters, is based on one of Richard's friends, as we said, David Watson from the Society of Creative Anachronism. This guy goes way back, and you go way back with him if you've been playing all of these games. Blackthorn captures him. He is put in a death trap. You basically have to betray the resistance to save Eolo, or Eolo will die. Not the kind of death that, oh, let's go to the healer and... <laughs> Yeah, we'll pay 500 gold, person solve, problem solve. No, he is dead. He is removed from the game, never to be seen or heard from again. You lose. Good day, sir. He's gone. He's erased. Pretty much. He's erased from the disc. No, he's literally erased from the disc. Now, you know, that's kind of undermined by the fact that he keeps showing up in later games, no matter what choice you make here. That only happens if you get caught in Blackthorn's castle. Exactly. I mean, the long-term impact of that is less amazing than the short-term impact. That's what I mean by sometimes when you try to build larger significance out of the whole Ultima universe, it falls apart. But still, that's an interesting thing. And the part where you have to betray one of your companions, it is the only way to get that piece of information, and it is the only way to progress that. There's no alternate path. He put that in there so that you would have to make that sacrifice and really think about where principles and virtues and practicality and the greater good all intersect. Again, it may not sound very impressive now, but in the context of games in 1988, where most RPGs were still basically just dungeon crawls, beat the bad guys, gather the treasure. Hail me, paladin, me go destroy evil. <laughs> evil die. I get all the gold, buy more treasures. And kill more bad guy. Right. Having these kind of shades in an RPG at all is just truly fascinating and and truly outstanding. I would argue that these kind of shades that he brings in in Ultima 5 and some of the later games, you don't even see today. Usually all these morality systems that you see Mm -hmm. pay arguably lip service to it. If you choose this way, you are evil overlord of doom. You choose this way. I am an innocent angel of goodness. <laughs> There's no in-between, which is Very what little, really yeah. he's trying to teach here, is that I'm not perfectly good or evil. Alex isn't perfectly good or evil. We both have done things in our lives we regret. We have done things in our lives that are to be celebrated as great things. That's true for anyone. That's part of the human condition, that we have these choices we make throughout our lives. Some of them are good. Some of them are evil. Sometimes we have to take the lesser of two evils. Exploring that, this game really, really brings out that is so fascinating. And I would argue that outside of the Ultima series, few, if any, games really 
look at morality at this level of granular grayness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, it was a big hit. I'm not sure it was quite as big as Ultima 4, though it might have been. I mean, we just don't have good sales figures oftentimes, but it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It was a big hit. So that brings us to Ultima 6. Time for some false profits. That's right. So Ultima 6, we'll spend a little less time talking about than the other two. It's significant in its own way, but it's not as significant as the games that come immediately before and after. Ultima 4 was all about making the game be about something rather than just go kill the big bad, win the game. Ultima 5 was kind of about let's design things a little better. Let's focus on design more. Let's focus on story more because Richard has help and doesn't have to do all the programming himself more. And so it frees up his time to do these other things. Ultima 7 is about taking everything that Ultima has done in the past and making it into a completely cohesive and amazing whole with an amazing world, amazing interaction, and a good story and good dialogue and good characters. It's kind of the pinnacle of the series. Ultima 6, sandwiched right in between these games, is about taking that groundwork of Ultima 5 and starting to move towards what would be Ultima 7, but not quite making it there. I think a big part of the reason for that is that this was also the game where the Apple II was finally abandoned. Remember, Ultima 5 came out in 1988. The Apple II is long past its prime at this point. I mean, really, the Apple II has been in decline as a game platform ever since the Commodore 64 started really gaining traction in 1983. By 1988, the IBM PC is starting to become a viable game platform, plus the Commodore 64 is still out there. It's aging. It's starting to near the end of its life, too. You have two platforms now that are becoming these game systems, and the Apple II is old and pretty much being abandoned. Richard fought that to death. The Apple II is what he knew. It's what he always worked on. It's what he started on. He was just going to be an Apple II programmer for life, I think. They did start Ultima 6 on the Apple II, but it soon became clear that if they wanted to keep pushing the series forward, the complexity of the world and the interactions and the plot and everything, they finally had to leave it behind. So after wasting a few months trying to do Ultima 6, on the Apple II, they did move to the PC as the principal platform. This is also the period when a new, very important influence on the Ultima series comes in, and that is Warren Spector. Warren Spector is one of the more celebrated personalities in the history of computer games, though he's often given credit for more than he should be, and given less credit for the things that he really should be given credit for. He's been heavily involved with several groundbreaking products, Wing Commander, Ultima Underworld, Deus Ex, big important games that pushed the entire PC gaming experience forward. But he was not a designer on those games. He was a producer. A game like Ultima Underworld or Deus Ex, while he was leading in some way the development of it, he wasn't really the one coming up with the concepts that made those games so revolutionary. He was the one that was basically juggling all the balls and keeping it moving forward. But that is something that Warren Spector 
was incredibly good at doing. Even though he gets too much credit sometimes for being the creator of this and that, there's no doubt that some of these games would not have taken the same form if Warren had not been involved. Warren's path into computer games was actually kind of weird and convoluted. He had gone to school in television and film. He was planning to become a film critic. He wasn't going into radio, television, and film as a discipline to make movies. He wanted to be a film critic. He wanted to be an academic. He went on to get a master's. He got his BS in communication. And then at the University of Texas at Austin, here we go. He was not native to Austin, but he went to get his graduate degree in Austin. He was earning his MA in radio, TV, film so that he could become a scholar of film or a critic of film or something like that. That's what interested him. He was also introduced to Avalon Hill board games, to RPGs, to D&D. He became very interested in games. Because he was in Austin, he fell in with the crowd at Steve Jackson Games. He ended up becoming an editor of their products and then the editor-in-chief of their products. So he wasn't designing games at Steve Jackson Games, but he was supervising the development. He was making sure all the pieces fit. He was taking on the same role that essentially a producer would do in video games. Because he was in Austin and it was with Steve Jackson and Small World, Richard Garriott knows Steve Jackson. They ended up meeting. The first time they met, they didn't really even speak to each other. It's just Richard was visiting Steve Jackson because they were buddies. This was when he was still in New Hampshire. It was his black phase. He was there in his black leather and his black Mitsubishi, and, you know, Spectre kind of took note of him. Then Spectre actually got what should have been a dream job, moving up to the big leagues. He landed a job as an editor at TSR, the makers of Dungeons & Dragons. He wasn't working directly on D&D there. He worked on some of their other product lines, most notably the top secret RPG, which is secret agent stuff. He did do a little bit of work, I think, on second edition AD&D, but it wasn't his primary focus. After a while, though, he got kind of burned out on that. I mean, he didn't like being up north. He had grown accustomed to Texas. TSR was in Lake Geneva in Wisconsin. It's not quite as bad as New England for the snow, but it's pretty close and it's certainly frigid cold. He decided he didn't like living up there. He was feeling overwhelmed. The company was kind of understaffed, overproductized, and so he was getting burned out. Ends up being on a panel with Richard about games at a convention, ArmadilloCon, down in Austin. They realize that they have a lot of similar philosophies, and so... He kind of takes a liking, they become friends, and he ultimately comes down and works at Origin as a producer. Warren becomes the co-producer of Ultima 6 with Richard. I think what he brought to it was an even kind of sharper focus. Because what Richard would do is he would just write down all of these ideas that he had, kind of in a notebook. But he wouldn't necessarily always think about how you get from A to B to C and how you link all of these things together. That's why. You would end up with crazy things like the one clue you need is by this guy hidden in the extreme corner of this one village that you barely even know is there, and you're lucky if you ever stumble across him. It's fine to have a game that challenges you to explore, but it becomes a design flaw when even when you think you've explored everything and the game makes you think you've explored everything, you still miss something. There's a difference between being hard and obtuse. Richard would often be obtuse. 
I don't think deliberately. It's just because of the way his mind worked and how he drew this stuff up and connected it. In Ultima 6, Warren and Richard would brainstorm together. They would write everything down in a notebook together. And then Warren would pass this along to other people on the team and work with them to connect all of these ideas together in a logical way. So the top-level design is still coming from Richard, but by being filtered through Warren, it allows everything to cohere a little better. The story flows more logically. There's not so many leaps of logic that you have to take to find that one guy that you need to progress the game. It's a game that in that sense is just better put together. This is also the first time that there was a lot of emphasis on a lot of dialogue for characters, and I mean a lot of dialogue. They actually had several writers work on the game, even someone who essentially operated as a head writer, even though, much to his chagrin, they never gave him that title in the credits. And that was Dr. Cat, who we talked about in our Origin episode, who had actually known Richard for a long time when Origin was first founded in Houston. They had put an ad in about the company, and it said something about, come program with us or whatever, and then Dr. Cat actually showed up. Turns out that they weren't actually ready to hire anybody, so they sent him on his way. Then Dr. Cat went off and worked for other companies. He made some games at Muse and at Penguin Software, then ended up coming back around and, and joining Origin. Now, Dr. Cat's a programmer, not a writer. I think most people would agree that the dialogue in Ultima 6 is not necessarily expertly written, but that's kind of what I mean by this being a game in transition, because, okay, so maybe the writing isn't great yet, but we're putting a new emphasis on dialogue and lots of dialogue, characters that are very distinct in what they have to say, and moving in this direction of greater expansiveness. They also completely scrapped the interface. You know, the game has always been based on typing in these usually one-letter commands to do things. The world has moved on. GUI interfaces exist. Origin itself has recently, as we discussed in our Origin episode, welcomed a new young designer by the name of Chris Roberts, soon to be famous for Wing Commander, but who at this time had done a kind of action ERPG partially based on The Legend of Zelda called Times of Lore. He had an icon-driven interface for that game. Richard saw this interface and decided, okay, this is wonderful. This is a great way to simplify things. Let's have an interface like that. I'm sure he also took influence from other places. There are elements of Dungeon Master, for instance, that it's hard to believe that they weren't aware of because that was such a landmark game. They came up with an icon-driven interface, a graphical inventory instead of a text inventory, and a unified window where everything kind of takes place in the same space. Not just that all your commands are always there in that space, but it's one seamless world now. In the past games, you had an overworld, and then you would have town icons or castle icons. You'd walk on those, and then you'd be brought to another tile-based castle or town. The dungeons, dating all the way back to even pre-Ultima with a Calabeth, were those three-dimensional spaces. When you entered a dungeon, you'd be put into this separate dungeon exploration mode. Ultima 6, it's all one seamless world. You don't go to a separate screen to get to the uh, towns and dungeons. You just walk right into them on the same tile-based map. The dungeons are no longer 3D. They're tile-based just like everything else. They're modernizing the interface and they're modernizing the presentation. Because it's the first game on the IBM PC, they don't fully necessarily get there yet. It's not a bad game at all. But 
I'd say it suffers in comparison to Ultima 5 and Ultima 7 on either side of it, especially in comparison to Ultima 7, which just takes everything that Ultima 6 did and kind of kicks it up to 11. Story-wise, it takes another interesting approach. So at the start of the game, all you know is that there's this race of monsters that have appeared. Gargoyles! Exactly. These gargoyles that have started rising up out of fissures in the ground, and they are terrorizing the people. They're also the ones who summoned you into Britannia, and they were just about to sacrifice you on a table. Then Ilolo, who had died in the previous game, comes and saves you, so it's great. Yay! It looks like this is going to be a very straightforward, rah rah gargoyles bad, kill gargoyles, save Britannia. Well, as you get further along, it turns out, at the end of Ultima Four, when you got the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom in the Stygian Abyss, after that happened, the people of Britannia basically inverted the Stygian Abyss to create this gigantic mountain dedicated to virtue and all of that. Turns out doing that kind of made a complete ruinous mess of the Gargoyles' homeworld under the planets. Not to mention they worship the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom as their own holy book, and some jerk with a sword came in there and took it away. Exactly. As you progress through the game, you come to learn that the gargoyles are just trying to defend themselves and defend their own culture, and you are the bad guy. The false prophet is you. You are prophesized to destroy their entire race. Exactly, and they're trying to just trying to protect themselves from extinction. Another thing that's really interesting is you see Lord British, who's sort of supposed to be with you and sort of championing the virtues, goes like, no, no, just go kill all the gargoyles. It's all good. And you're like, no, we're not doing that. Instead of destroying the big bad, the plot becomes reconciling these two groups of people so that they can both live in harmony in the way they need to live for their own society. What happens near the end is... You put the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom back into the ether space, magical land, whatever. Magical lenses are created in order to read it. One's given to Lord British and one's given to the King of the Gargoyles, and they have to come together and work together to read the book. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's an interesting story of understanding uh, other cultures and cultural appropriation and, and looting of treasures and all of this kind of stuff. Kind of another interesting look at the morality of actions. All three of these middle games, four, five, six, are all looking at what it means to be moral, what it means to be virtuous, and how you can take that too far or through misunderstanding, take it in a bad direction, something like that. That's kind of what these games are about. Even though you think you're doing the most moral, virtuous thing, if you don't have all the facts, you could be in the wrong. Exactly. All the while, the games are getting more sophisticated. Larger teams are working on them. You're getting people like Warren Spector in who are better at just managing the flow of a project and making it all fit together. The games are becoming more polished. They're becoming more balanced. They're becoming less arbitrary in their solutions. They're continuing to be big hits. And this kind of all leads into both the high point and the low point of the series, which is after Ultima Six, Richard Garriott decides that he is next going to create a true, planned-out, plot-connected trilogy. He's going to make the world bigger and better than ever before, more involved, more interesting, more complex. The series reaches what I think most people would consider to be its true height with Ultima 7, and then through a lot of 
different issues, both internal and external, starts its tumbling decline into the dark depths of Ultima 8 and Ultima 9. Of course, that will all be the subject of the final episode of our trilogy of trilogies next time on They Create Worlds. Certainly, we will be investigating that. I do want to clear up one thing first. At this point in time, Origin's completely independent for all three of these games, right? They haven't been acquired by the evil ones yet. (laughs) Well, you know, a lot gets made about that, but as we'll see when we do our next episode, really too much gets made about that. Electronic Arts buying the company, while it, it did lead them down a certain path, it's hard to blame Electronic Arts itself for most of those problems. But that's really something that ties into what happens with especially Ultima 8, and which we will look into in, in actual detail next time. Well, Avatar, it looks like your history lesson is over. I guess I'll leave you alone for now. But we will see you next time on They Create Worlds, where I'm going to have to send you through some sort of dark. Black Gate. <laughs> Check out their show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where they have links to some of the things that they discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out the Historian's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com The Historian's book they Create World, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered at CRC Press and at major online retailers. Their Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting them on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roll of Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. And I have been the Guardian who will be with you in the next episode. <laughs>